If you will turn your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 17, verses 18 through 21. That is the book of Acts, chapter 17, verses 18 through 21. And it reads as follows. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Thank you, and please be seated. Thank you, Scott, for our reading tonight, and thank you, Stan, for leading us in those beautiful songs, and I'd have to admit some of those are my very favorites. Thank you for your fine participation in our singing and in our worship and, and for your presence tonight. We're always very grateful. Uh, we continue tonight with our Sunday night seminar, and an outline has been prepared. If you do not have one, please raise your hand, and deacons are uh, spotted throughout the uh, auditorium tonight, and they will uh, make sure that you get a copy. And there's a lot of material that we cover in the seminar, and so... I do think an outline is helpful to you, and that's why we do it. It's all to be of help and benefit to you. And then, of course, we have the projector, the PowerPoint presentation to help us in that regard as well, and then the lesson itself, and surely we'll go away with a better understanding of this very important topic. We have been studying the sermons of the New Testament, and that is a rich piece of material to study. And we come tonight to a marvelous sermon by the Apostle Paul. We've seen two by the Apostle Peter, where he spoke to the Jews on Pentecost in Acts 2, and he also spoke to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10, in the household of Cornelius. We've seen one by Stephen, as he spoke to the Jewish Sanhedrin, and we have seen one by Paul already, as he spoke to the Jews at Antioch of Pisidia. Remarkable sermon itself, Acts chapter 13. But here we have a different sermon altogether. The sermon that we have tonight is from the Apostle Paul, and he speaks to the Athenians. This is a part of his travels as a missionary, and um, he is moved and stirred in his spirit when he sees the city that is given to idolatry. And indeed, the nation and the culture of Rome was a prominent culture, Uh, Greece was certainly one of the uh, uh, great cultures of of world history. And even though Rome was in control at the time of Paul and the writing of the book of Acts, still uh, the Greek influence was there and was a powerful influence on the world. Uh, The language, the uh, laws, the architecture, all of this we have borrowed from the Greek culture itself. Uh, This is the Areopagus. The Areopagus is um, uh, a hill, and um, it means the high rock of the city, basically, but uh, polis is the Greek word for city, and so it is saying the high rock. And each Greek city would have an Acropolis. Uh, In this Acropolis, 
would be the city square, would be the temples, would be the important uh, buildings of the day. And as I said, each of the Greek cities would have one, but it's the Acropolis at Athens that really becomes the notable one. And generally speaking, when somebody talks about the Acropolis, then that is the one they're referring to, even though there were many in Paul's day and in ancient times. And it was a marvel to behold the, the temple of uh, uh, Diana the, in Ephesus, uh, very much like uh, that. The Parthenon is there on the Acropolis and, and um, Artemis and just all sorts of historical background information and material could be offered on this occasion. But we spend just a brief moment introducing it to you. And then the Areopagus uh, is what I should be saying. That was the Acropolis, now the Areopagus. The Areopagus uh, was about northwest of the Acropolis. If these sound confusing to you, I understand because they're not words that we use today. And so it's a little hard for me to decide Paul's sermon on or to the Areopagus. Uh, This is where a lot of the matters were heard, and you can go there and visit that place called Mars Hill. It is a high rock, which a lot of the uh, uh, information of the day and the culture of the day was discussed. If you'll notice in the passage that was read, they wanted to hear some new thing. They were very anxious to hear some new doctrine. And so this was ready-made for a man like Paul who wanted to preach to them the gospel of Christ. And so he takes advantage of the information and the opportunity to preach to them about God, God Almighty, and uh, explaining to them about the one true God. Now, at the time of Paul, the um, culture of Athens was changing, and uh, the Greek world was on its way out, and the Roman world was a more powerful force in that day and time and really ruled the known world at the time. And so, one wonders how would the Greeks respond to the change politically, the change culturally, the change religiously. Well, they wanted to hear some new thing. How would Paul respond? Living in a day in which there was so much change. We live in a day when there's a lot of change culturally. And we have seen a lot of change morally. We've seen a lot of change culturally. How shall we respond? And Phil was admonishing us to grow stronger in love for each other and grow stronger in our love for God. That's where it starts. And faithful churches of Christ can be cities set on a hill and admonishing others to be faithful to God and His Word even in the midst of such change. I think some people are overwhelmed by the change. And then there are some people who just uh, are indifferent to the change. But Paul was neither one. Paul was neither overwhelmed nor indifferent. He wanted to do something about it. And so he talks to these very learned men on that occasion. And what does he speak of? He speaks of the fundamentals. And he goes back to the very idea of God itself. And he begins with the greatness of God. And the sermon is first great point found for us, Acts chapter 17, verse 24. And he talks about how great God is. He said, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God, what therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. <clears throat> what he had gone through, and he'd seen all the idols, all the altars, all the temples. And as Luke records in Acts chapter 17, says his heart was stirred within him when he saw all this. 
and he had a type of righteous indignation about him. And so he wanted to address this some way. And so he found an altar or a god that had this inscription, the unknown god. So superstitious and religious were the Athenians, the Grecians, that they were afraid they might have missed one of the gods. And so they erected an altar, and in case we miss one, here's one to the unknown God, an altar for you. And Paul saw that, and that was the springboard for his sermon. Now, that's the God I want to tell you about. That's the God I want to explain, the unknown God. You don't know about him. You're ignorant of him and ignorant of his ways, and I want to explain that particular matter to you. And he talks about the concept of God. He does not start with Jesus. He starts with God. He starts with the people where they were. And I think there's a point with regard to our mission work that we ought to take notice of. And that is when we talk to people about the gospel, we don't start where we wish they were, but we start where they are. And we have to work from there and lead them step by step to a recognition of what the gospel is and admonish them uh, to obey it. But he tells us in this particular statement how great God is because he's made everything. To the unknown, unknown God, whom therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made with hands. So really Paul starts where Moses started in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And so Paul starts right at that point. He did not offer any philosophical arguments for the existence of God. After all, these people believed in all kinds of gods. They were already religious. They just didn't believe in the one true God. And so he doesn't offer philosophical arguments as one would with an atheist. An atheist who says, I know that God does not exist. Well, you're going to have to offer argumentation and reason to show and prove that the one true God of the Bible does exist. And that certainly can be done. But here he doesn't do it that way. The rationale of his sermon is, I'm going to take these people where they are. They're very religious. They're very superstitious. They believe in all sorts of gods. I'm going to start with God. Now, the God, this unknown God whom you're ignorantly worship, worshiping, he is the one that created heaven and earth. He's the one that made all things. These were not atheists. These were people who believed in God. But he quickly moves from the greatness of God and his creative work to the goodness of God. And I think that's an important point to see the transition. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and all things and everything. In other words, God gives. God did not just create the world and walk away from it, but God continued to provide for the world. He's a great giving God. And he's trying to impress upon them how great God is. He's made all mankind. He's made the world. And he sustains mankind. He sustains the world. He provides for it. He's talking about the goodness of God. How wonderful God really is. God is truly good. Now this naturally would refute some of the philosophical views of his day. Materialism was a very popular view in Paul's day. And the Greeks, the Epicureans, as they are mentioned in the text, were people who were concerned about that. They actually thought that the world came together out of a collision of atoms and the world actually came about that way. It was some kind of collision. Uh, there are those out there today who have uh, very close 
affinity to that particular view, as silly as that is. The Big Bang Theory is one of the very popular theories to the creation of the world. But nobody seems to ask, where did the atoms come from? Nobody seems to ask, you know, how, what caused this Big Bang? They all want to presuppose it and then go from there. Well, I'm not willing to presuppose that. The Bible says that man is more than just material. And the world in which we live is more than just molecules in motion. And so he makes it very clear that the Epicureans are wrong on this point. God is good and God gives. And the further point, God does not dwell in temples made with hands. Now as he would look down, he'd see some beautiful temples there. And if we were visiting the Acropolis today and looked at that little hill, Mars Hill, and looked down upon the city and we would look up to the Acropolis and all of the wonderful cities, we'd see beautiful temples. The Temple of Zeus, probably the largest temple ever built. You would see uh, the Temple of the Parthenon, one of the great wonders of the Western world. In the Agora down here, We'd look over to our side here and we'd see the marketplace where people would come and go and buy and sell. They'd buy their groceries and they'd sell their vegetables and their food products and that kind of thing. And there would be gods there for sale. And these people would have gods. And then you would look over here at a person's house and they would have gods of silver and gods of gold in their homes, which they actually worshipped. And Paul is going right to the heart of the matter when he talks about the goodness of God that these gods, these false gods that you see in the Agora, these false gods that you see up on that great hill there in the Acropolis, these great gods, they are made of man-made device. They're made of silver and gold, and yet they do not give anything. They cannot do anything. But the God that Paul is talking about gives. And notice how he says it in verse 25. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives. And the text is emphasizing the fact of God is doing the giving to all mankind, life and bread. To be thankful to God, this unknown God, the God of heaven and earth, for all that you have. Now, if you're of the kind and of the mind that you wonder, well, do I really need God? Let's take a moment um, briefly for the present. And let's just take a big breath. Let's do that now. Just breathe in a big breath and then let it out. Thankful to God you have air to breathe because he gives all life and breath and all things. Without the gift of God, you wouldn't be able to breathe breathe that air. Without the gift of God, you wouldn't have any air to breathe. Notice how man needs God for every breath he takes. And Paul is saying God is good. Now, this really would strike at the heart of the Greek pantheon because you had these gods that were good, had these gods that were bad. And as you study these gods in the Greek pantheon, you soon see that they're very much like human beings. They commit sin. They do terrible things with each other. They do terrible things with the children of gods. They have just a very humanistic approach to the gods and how they act in these particular matters. And Paul says all this is wrong. He says the one true God of heaven and earth is a good God. He gives to all life and breath, and all things. He provides for us. He helps us. And without Him, we wouldn't have anything, nor would we be able to survive. But He quickly transcends to another point. And I looked at that, and I saw the government of God. 
And he says in verse 26, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live in all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. You see, he refers to Adam there. He's made of one man, all nations of men. Now this, no doubt, would bother the Greeks because the Greeks would consider themselves very unique. We're a very sophisticated group. We have a very sophisticated language. We have a great history. And everybody else, as far as we are concerned, are barbarians. You see that reflected in Paul's statement, Romans 1, verse 16, 15 and 16. He says uh, that the Greeks, whether Jew or Greek or barbarian or Scythian, uh, the Greeks thought of themselves as being very unique. Now, they weren't the only ones to do that. I think every nation at one time or another has looked upon themselves as there's us and then there's them the Jews, but then there's the Gentiles. Here there are the Roman citizens, but then there are the people who are not Roman citizens. Everybody seems to put a category, everyone in a category, here and there with regard to the different people of the world, and the Greeks were very fond of doing that. They were a very sophisticated crowd. But here the government of God, he's made of one He's made from one man all nations of men. All would come from this one man. And he's referring to Adam. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. This is God's way of doing it. You know, there's really no distinction in people that matters except one. Whether you are in Christ or whether you are out of Christ. Now that distinction matters. No other distinction matters. It doesn't matter who you are, where you are. It doesn't matter about your culture. It doesn't matter about your language. It doesn't matter about your education. It doesn't matter about your wealth or what level you are economically. Those things do not matter to God. They don't impress God. The only thing that matters as far as a category of people are those who are in Christ, those who have obeyed the gospel of Christ, repented of their sins, confessed their faith, been baptized into Christ, and those who have not. That's the only distinction that matters. And those who have not need to be in Christ. That's the only distinction. But he goes on from there, and he says he controls all things. And uh, he tells me in verse 26, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live in all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries. God has appointed the geographic boundaries. God has appointed the seasons in which we enjoy springtime and summertime, seed time and harvest, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him, though He actually is not far from every one of us. And maybe I should pause just for a moment and talk a little bit about this wonderful point God controls these things. We all need to look at Daniel chapter 2 and passages in Daniel where Daniel tells us that God raises them up and he brings them down. And he's talking about kings and kingdoms. They will be used for his purpose. And then when God's purpose is finished, then he will bring them down. He will determine the length of the reign of kings. He has determined the geographic boundaries. He did not create and walk away from this world, but God has given the Greeks their day. But now there is another one, and that is the Roman Empire. But by verse 27, he's making the point, and I'm still in this matter of the government of God. He's making the point you need to seek God. And as you look at this sermon, you see how tightly woven this sermon is. He goes from one point to the next. 
And one point really relies on the previous point. God is the creator. God is a good creator and a good provider. And God has given us this government. And there in turn we should seek him. And he encourages them to seek God. So there's got to be more to it than possession and position and pleasure. Epicurean, Stoic, he's speaking right to them. There's something here more important than that, and that is seeking God. Seek Him. Now, Jesus gave us a second important purpose, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16, to glorify God, to let our light so shine before men that they may see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven. And that really is the method by which we come to God. We seek Him. We learn about Him. We obey Him. And then we glorify Him. And what other purpose is there? What other purpose is there for life on this earth but to seek God and learn of Him and obey Him and glorify His wonderful name? It is the ultimate purpose of of us all. And He's not far from every one of us. Isn't that a wonderful statement that He makes? And He made from one man every living all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling. Now verse 27 that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He's actually not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed His offspring. Indeed, man must seek God and find Him, and he can find Him. Once again, he's making the point, God's not so far out there, you can't come to know God. You can come to know God. You can come to know the God, this unknown God that you ignorantly worship, if you'll seek Him and find Him. Take the blinders off. You know one of the games we always played when I was a kid? It was always at some kid's birthday party. And uh, it was pin the tail on the donkey. Now, you probably don't know anything about that old game. But you would blindfold a kid, and it would be his turn. He'd try to pin the tail on the donkey. There's no way you can pin the tail on the donkey when you're blindfolded and you can't see Well, that's the way a lot of people live their lives. They live their lives like they're trying to pin the tail on the donkey. They have the blinders on, and they're not looking, and they're not seeking, and they're not searching. You've got to look, you've got to seek, and you will find, if you will, that God is there, and that God loves you, that God, in turn, is close to every one of us. Verse 28, He is a personal God. And even their own poets have written about that. In Him we live and move and have our being as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. If you'll notice in this sermon, Paul does not quote any scripture, but he's arguing biblical arguments. He's setting forth fundamental elements about the nature and the will of God. And he's trying to tell us by verse 29, it's time that you serve him and worship him correctly. Now here's an attack upon the idolatrous practices of the pagans itself. And this man is speaking right to their needs. He's telling them in a very sophisticated way, you're worshiping the wrong God. You shouldn't be worshiping these idols. Being then God, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of men, You ought not to be looking at these idols. Don't look toward these idols as a means of actual help as worship and devotion. The practice of idol worship is an old practice. In this particular instance, they are turning to these images of stone. 
Isaiah would ridicule the children of Israel for their practice of idolatry. And he would tell them how foolish it was. And that's a powerful argument that Isaiah gives. And yet Paul gives a powerful argument here. They're worthless. They will not help you. They are dumb images. I just wonder. I am going to say, and I don't know this for sure, but I would say most of the world today practices idolatry. Even today, with educated as he is. Now, I don't know most of the world. I suppose uh, the people who are involved in the statistics understand that and can tell us exactly who worships what and where they live and all that sort of thing. But I would say, just from an understanding of the population of the world and the locations of those populations, most of the world probably is idolatry and falls into the category of worshiping images of stone and metal and silver and gold, which simply cannot help them. And thus he tells them, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think of the divine being as like gold or silver and stone. That word divine being is a special word that's translated from this English Standard Version. It means sometimes older translations would use the word Godhead. A more modern word that's being used more and more is called Godhood. It means the same thing. For example, if we were to look at what makes a man and his manhood... Here are the qualities that make a man a man. This is what makes him a human being, a man. That's his manhood. And so the word is being used as a special word in the Greek language that we're trying to understand in our English language. And it is saying, here are the qualities of God that you ought to understand. This is what makes God, God. And you ought not to think of him in his Godhood, in his Godhead, whichever word you prefer as being of silver and stone, created by man's imagination. You can't create God. You can create false gods out of your imagination. But God created you, and God provides for you. And I think it's bold preaching to people who are very sophisticated and are listening to what this man says, hearing the gospel for the very first time, talking about the divine nature of God. That's the way God is. Bold preaching like this started a riot in Ephesus, Acts chapter 19. These particular men were listening to what Paul had to say about their false views of God and His divine nature. Paul was saying, God is personal. God is omnipresent. That is, He's everywhere. You can't get away from God. You can't run from God. God knows all that can be known. He is omniscient. There's no truth, there's no fact God doesn't already know. Well, he knows everything that can be known. This is the personal God that Paul was trying to refer to. And now notice what he does in verse 30. Tells them about the grace of God. Now in the times of this ignorance, God winked at. Old King James Version used the word winked. Perhaps a better word for that would be overlooked. Or God decided to disregard it. What does he mean by that? The times of God overlooked. Verse 30. Have to be careful with this because we don't want to say that when these people who were involved in sin and past dispensations that that was okay with God. It wasn't okay. 
God did not endorse it. God did not want it. But God overlooked it. God disregarded it. And I think every one of us can relate to what's taking place in verse 30. All of our kids, you'll remember how young they were. And some of their antics were very foolish and silly, and we overlooked some of those things. But when they became older, we expected more out of them. And we overlooked this. We didn't like it. We didn't approve it. We tried to instruct, but we overlooked or disregarded some of the things which they did because of the tenderness of their years and because of their immaturity and their inexperience. Well, that's what's taking place here. There was a time when God did that. There was a time when God overlooked. Not that He condoned it, not that He wanted it, but He overlooked it. He disregarded it. But that time has come to an end. And that's his point in verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. That day is over. And he's no longer going to be overlooking the sins of the Gentile world or anyone who's out there for that matter now that they have the inspired Word of God. They are not going to have any kind of overlooking of their sins. Now, if you notice the word ignorance, It's the word ignorance that we have in verse 30. He uses this word three times in this sermon. And he's telling them, you really are ignorant. Now, by our standard, we might think about that's a pretty coarse thing to say to people that we're talking to and we're trying to help them understand the truth of the matter. But he really uses that word three times, twice in verse 23 and then also in this passage in verse 30. He's very plain about the matter, and he's not going to overlook the sins of people, the times of this ignorance. You do not know, you do not understand, but that's not going to be an excuse when it comes to the great judgment day of God. And that's his point in verse 31. Did you notice that? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. You know, he started out with the creation of the world. God, the greatness of God was great because He created the world. Now He's ending the sermon with the grace of God and the judgment day. And is that not what we're all walking to? Every life is walking a journey to judgment. And He's saying to them, you're going to face the judgment day, one great day. You're going to face God on the day of judgment. This unknown God is going to be your judge on that great day, and you've got to be prepared for that judgment. The next point that really is given, I think, is something well to consider. There are some concluding remarks about the observations and the reaction of the audience as we've analyzed this great sermon of Paul to the Gentiles, Acts chapter 17. Notice in this particular instance, verse 32 said, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. And basically you have some that mocked and some were putting it off and saying, well, I'm not, I'll have to think about it. They wanted to wait, and some actually believed. And as I thought about this matter, I thought, you know, that's probably the result of every gospel sermon. Some people who will hear the gospel will ridicule it and mock it. You know why? It's easier to do that than to investigate it. It's a lot easier for me to poke fun at you and to call you names than to investigate your position, to see the substance of it and how objective you are about the matter. You're seeing that on television now. 
how they throw these names at each other and they talk about and they ridicule each other in this political arena that this country has every so many years. They're mocking each other. They make fun of each other. But that's an easy thing to do. It's easy for me to mock you. Who is this seed picker that would come up to us and tell us what to do? We got a guy coming in here from out of town. Now, it's true we ask him to speak, but when he starts talking about the resurrection, that breaks up the party. They're not going to listen. They were following him right along. They were following him right along with regard to the greatness of God and the goodness of God and the government of God and the grace of God until he came to the resurrection of the dead because Greeks didn't believe in that. They thought that the body was a prison for the soul and that when the body dies, then that soul is going to be released and it's going to enjoy freedom. And yet, here's a man who's talking about the body being resurrected. I'm not going to listen to that. And some of them mocked. And without investigating, considering carefully what he had to say. They mocked him and ridiculed him and made fun of him. That's what some people do. Some people will wait. It was Felix who decided, you know, I'll hear about this some other time, Acts chapter 24. I'll listen to thee on this another occasion. But I want to tell you something, and I hope you listen very carefully. Procrastination with God is a dangerous game. You better not put it off. You better take care of it now. As far as I know, Paul never went back to Athens. If you'll notice how Luke records this particular matter, so Paul went out from their midst and he never went back. They wouldn't have another opportunity to hear this on some other occasion. And that could very well be our situation. If you read and study from the pages of the Bible something that you need to do, something that you need to change, if you read from the pages of the Bible, this is what God is telling me, to repent of my sins and confess my faith and be baptized, immersed in water, full of the remission of sins, and He will add me to His church. And when I learn about that, and I learn about living a faithful Christian, I better be doing that right away. I think one of the most powerful words in Acts chapter 2 is that word then. Then they that received the word were baptized. They did it right then. They didn't wait. They didn't put it off. But a lot of people will do it. And when you try to procrastinate with God, you're going to be a loser for sure. Some believed. There was a few that saw what was taking was moved by the truth of the matter. A great sermon to people who were filled with a lot of intelligentsia filled with a lot of sophisticated learning and and thought of themselves as being very smart and very bright and very learned. After all, we are the people of Aristotle. We are the people of Plato. We are the people of Diogenes. Who is this telling us about this God who's going to judge us and this resurrection? We will not hear it and they departed. That's the way it is, isn't it? Jesus spoke about different soils in Matthew chapter 13. He said, some have a very shallow heart to them, and when the seed falls on that shallow soil, immediately it springs up, but the thorns of life choke the word of God out, and some fall on the wayside. It's very hard, and the fowl of the air come and devour it and take it right out of the soil. Some falls on good ground. And bears fruit 
Different hearts will receive the gospel in different ways. Have a tender heart when the gospel is taught. Have a tender, receptive heart when the Word of God is explained. And then do it. Then they that gladly received the Word were baptized. Do it right then. Obey the gospel right now. Won't you come? While together we stand and while we sing.